0: you listening to the brand new episode of in love with the process i'm your host mike pecci how are you guys doing what is new what is happening what's what's going on in your lives are we uh all playing it safe right now with the resurgence of uh covid uh out here in los angeles we've gone from mask it up to don't really need to wear a mask all the time to now we're in bars without masks to a bunch of people are spreading COVID. So now we're masking it up again. And hopefully this doesn't end up into stay in your house. Don't leave your fucking house thing. (laughs) That's my hope. Um, But other than that crazy dark uh, cloud that seems to be circling among us all the time, things have been good. Life has been great um just recently uh turned 43 so i've got a lot to talk about with that what it's like being in your early 40s um and the strange new things that you have to deal with which i think are fun uh and uh depressing at the same time (laughs) Uh, but i had a pretty subdued birthday because uh we have been deep in production we've been doing uh, two music videos. Uh, I've been working for Gina, who's been directing two music videos over the past month. And that stuff is pretty, uh, intense, uh, all inclusive. <laughs> uh, you really have, uh, no time to do much of anything else when these things are around. Uh, we'll get into that. Um, but yeah, it, ed- it ended up rolling through my birthday for one of the productions. So we, we did what we thought, what I thought was going to be a laid back day, um, And it ended up becoming something that was a lot of fun. So we'll also get into that too. But the crazy thing about my birthday this year was that it fell on record store day. And as you know, those of you who've been listening to the show, you guys know that I am now deep, deep, deep back into vinyls, back into record collecting, going to record stores. I absolutely love it. Um, And I dragged my ass out of bed early to stand in line to get in for record store day because there was one album in particular that I was looking forward to, an album that I had only heard just the slightest sample from. And I was like, ooh, that's fascinating. And it just so happens it's an album for an artist or artists that I've worked with before. And uh, I had heard a little bit of their new album on here on the, on like instagram i think it was like an instagram post and i reached out to them and i'm like what is this what is this thing now record store day has very specific rules i've been told this now uh one of the things that makes record store day releases special is that uh as the artist you're not allowed to like withhold any albums you're not allowed to put things aside or send little samples to folks. It's supposed to drop specifically in record stores on record store day, which makes it very special. And this artist that I will tell you who it is in a second. And if you've seen the graphic, you probably already know who it is. I don't know why I stretch it out. But uh, this artist uh, was saying that the only place that you could hear this music would be if you got your ass over to record store day and was you were able somehow able lucky enough to snatch up one of these limited edition vinyls, uh, so that got me out of bed because I really liked what I had heard. I thought the track was really interesting for them, um, and I'm you know I've been kind of obsessed with with having these things lately, owning physical media again, uh, and so I'm like fuck I gotta I gotta go get this thing because. According to them, they're not gonna release it on Spotify. They're not gonna release it anywhere. Who's this artist that I'm talking about? None other than the amazing Czarface. We're talking about uh, 7L. We're talking about Esoteric. We're talking about Inspect Deck. Uh, You guys know that I have done music videos for these guys in the past. I love these dudes. Um, I actually go (laughs) by their real names. Seamus is an amazing cat. Uh, A lot of fun, really funny dude. Very talented in front of the camera by the way. And he's, I know you're listening to this episode, Seamus. Well, I can't wait to put you in front of the camera again. I think we can do some fun stuff. Um, but also, uh George, who does a lot of the producing, although I'm unsure, wonder if it's on the album, I'm unsure of who did all the producing for this because this Zarface release is all instrumental. So it is just all really good producing, really good uh <laughs> like a white guy really good djing <laughs> that, that's really good djing no it's it's produced fantastically and in the past i know george does a lot of that um i know seamus also does it so i don't want to be the one that comes out and says well wow, great job george for doing all this because the other guys are involved um i know that the packaging for this album and it is the Czarface czar noir album which you got me at that and then uh both the guys, but especially Shameless's love for comic books, the vinyl itself is a comic book, which is super cool. Um, and then they changed they, they introduced a villain in the Czarface universe, the noir character, which uh in in like very traditional Marvel fashion, uh it's just a darker colored version of that character. So it is like Uh, You know, in in classic storytelling, it is uh, light versus dark, evil versus good, uh, and I'm very excited about it. Now, I went, stood in line at uh, my favorite new record shop, owned by my buddy Alex Rodriguez, who I've had on the show. Alex is the vinyl guru. He is the man who uh, was employed... uh, to travel across the country and collect vinyls from everywhere from like swap meets from personal collections from other record stores for coachella and uh he was in charge of setting up the coachella record store shop um in record store shop it's the same fucking thing dickhead coachella's record store uh, at coachella but then went on to continue the work in actual record stores here in Los Angeles. And he just recently opened up his own spot out here in Atwater village, uh, called record safari, which is uh, also titled after the documentary record safari that followed Alex around uh, when he was doing his vinyl lifting. Uh, The shop is fucking great. I love it. It's obvious that it's put together by a guy who has been to every record store in America. See, he understands space. He understands the the need for cleanliness because a lot of these spots just smell like mildew and they're super crowded and like more than one person can't get down an aisle. He's done a really great job laying this place out. It's bright. It's airy. um, And his collection is amazing. Now, this is a guy, like I said, who has traveled all over the country grabbing the best of the best, And he doesn't drop it all out at once. So he slowly releases his collections over the weeks, over the days, during the week. Um, And so I woke up on my birthday, on my 43rd birthday, which I'm not depressed about, by the way. The 40s aren't that bad. But I woke up on my 43rd birthday in the midst of like crazy production hell on music videos, getting into post-production on music videos, just the insanity that comes with doing a low budget production. uh, And knowing that, uh, you know, with this new COVID fucking protocol, uh, the birthday that I was planning or that I thought would happen, wasn't necessarily going to happen. And so I I thought to myself, well, what would make me happy today? What would I like to do? I want to go in the morning, stand in line, believe it or not, I want to go stand in line with a bunch of other record nerds. And see if I might be able to get my hands on this Zarface album. Maybe I'll do it. Maybe I'll snatch it. Because I had seen a post from the Record Safari that they only had two copies. So maybe I'd get one of them. Um, But more importantly, I just like to go through and sort through this collection of vinyls that Alex has put together and grab some new stuff. And uh, that was my day. That was my morning. And I went... Stood in line early. Gina called me up when she woke up and she's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm in line. I'm hanging out. I'm going to get some albums. She's like, I'm coming. <laughs> so she drives over, gets in line with me. And uh, Gina's like, she's, when it comes to shopping, she's my little hitman." So I was like, well, look, I don't want to be the guy that runs in there and like, you know, trips people and punches them in the face and knocks them down to get my hands on one of two albums on a shelf. But If you are so inclined to maybe get your hands on this album, I'll float around and act like the better man in this situation and see what you can get your hands on. If if you you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't. It's not the end of the world. And uh, so doors opened, and she did. She ran right up front and snatched it, and I got my hands on one of two in the store, one of two copies of this album. And let me tell you right now, it is fucking fantastic. Every track, every track on this thing is, is amazing. And it's a great departure. It fits in the Czarface universe, but the sound itself just feels more cinematic. It feels more like a score. It just feels bigger, which is really great. Um, and I know George and I know his obsession with uh, 1970s movie scores and, and uh, Japanese imports and uh, Seamus' obsession with old Godzilla movies. And, and George actually just recently opened up his own vinyl shop out in Massachusetts. For those of you on the East Coast that are listening, you should definitely go check out uh, 7 um, L shop, George's shop. I think he's in Beverly, Mass. And I think the place is called Soundtrack or Soundtracks. I'm looking it up right now. There's so many things that I wrote down that I wanted to get on the show and I didn't look up. I'm just a really shitty host. I'm surprised you even listened to this. It's called Soundtracks Beverly. So if you go to uh, Instagram, look up Soundtracks Beverly, the show is called the shop is called Soundtracks new and used vinyls. um, And uh, George's collection of stuff, his curation of vinyls is always amazing. I've worked with him in the past. Uh, on scoring pieces, we did an uh, early piece for Dale Strong. I think that poly piece that we did, he did a couple of tracks or he gave me a couple of tracks for. He's perfect. He's literally perfect for like a Tarantino heist film. If you like that kind of stuff, if you like that 1970s uh, Pam Greer meets, you know, um, Goblin, like that kind of stuff, George has always got a great collection. Uh, And he knows what a nerd I am for uh, like samples. He knows what a nerd I am for like old Godzilla tracks. He actually sent me over like this massive collection of Godzilla roar samples and monster samples that I think he was pulling for an album and he's like, I know you're gonna love these. (laughs) Um, But uh, that being said, this noir album, Czar noir album, which I got my hands on. One of the lucky few And I think there are still some copies out there floating around, maybe in some record stores that maybe didn't get picked up. But uh, I I saw, I think Seamus posted uh, a list, like the charts for Record Store Day. And I think they were like number two or number three on like top sellers for Record Store Day, which is pretty huge. Which means, let me get to the point here. The point is, there aren't a lot of these albums out there. Second point is, you can't hear any of this shit online. And it's good. I actually... I'm, I'm enjoying lording over you with this. <laughs> I'm enjoying teasing you with this. Uh, and uh, when I wrote to George, I said to him, like, dude, killing it. I wrote to him and Seamus. And I was like, you guys are killing it. This new album's really great. I'd love... Because I know you guys aren't playing them online. I'd love to be able to play them on the show. Right? And he goes well yeah i mean it isn't on there digitally but maybe you could you know if you could figure out how to hook it up maybe you could drop a needle on the show you know so i just did i hooked up my my turntable and here you go you're welcome Process. Can you hear that stuff online? Very excited to uh, have you guys on the show today. Uh, those of you listening, I have no one on the show. I'm very excited to be on the show today, talking to you guys. It has been a while since I've caught up, and it's just been a one-on-one. So you know the deal. We're going to be playing a bunch of tracks off of this hard-to-find uh, Czarface vinyl. We're going to tease you with a couple more tracks during the length of this episode. I'll get into. Uh, what's been going on with us, what's been going on, uh, with my birthday, what I did with my birthday and, uh, whatever sort of bullshit comes to mind. So, you know, the deal strap yourselves in. I've been hearing from listeners that they like the original read, even though it doesn't make sense. Right? So my, at my initial send off, which is grab those noise canceling headphones, sit back, relax, and enjoy the brand new episode of in love with the process. What <laughs> the Right, so welcome everybody to the show. Let me get some uh, thanks out before we get into it. Uh, I just want to give a straight up thanks to everybody that continues to support the show by heading over to inlovewiththeprocess.com and uh, clicking on our sponsor links that are embedded underneath each episode. Um, This isn't the sponsor ad read yet, but I just want to remind you guys, if you want to support the show, please do so. Click through on the sponsor links, visit our sponsors on Instagram, and just let them know that you heard about them because you've been listening to the show. It's super simple to do. It's very easy to do. It doesn't take you any time. And I hate being that guy that's like, here's your fucking homework, but it's true. I need you to do it. So please do so. And uh, big shout out to everybody that has been uh, following me on Instagram and uh, responding to posts and responding to contests and coming up with uh, new guest ideas. Everything that you write to me, I eventually get to. I listen and respond to as many uh, comments as I possibly can. Um, but uh, like I said, it's been pretty crazy. The past, God, man, I, it just seems like yesterday when you know we're sitting in COVID and my day consisted of waking up, riding a bike, having some cereal, Doing a little reading, doing a little scripts research, figuring out what I'm having for dinner, and then going to bed. That was my life for like a year. And then we get out of uh, COVID and I swear to God, as soon as we could in, mingle with people, that first two weeks was just insanity of like that need, that urge to get out, have meals with people, hang out with people, talk to people. Do you guys feel the same way? What was it like for you the first couple of weeks? Um, It was great. It was a lot of fun. But there was this point where I realized that I really kind of liked a lot of my lifestyle that I had to learn to figure out, to develop when I was stuck in the house. And the slowing down of the anxiety, the slowing down of the rat race that was what controlled us all for so long prior it was just nice you know and I've talked about it on prior episodes we've talked about the things that we've learned and that I learned during COVID about myself and about my work ethics and my work habits and um but I didn't really realize how exhausting our prior lives were until we had to jump back in again and uh this has been going on for the past but month at this point all the way down to uh starting work again it's starting to get back into the rat race starting to get back into that game and uh i'm incredibly proud of the work that gina's been doing she's been killing it with music videos music artist branding uh restyling uh creative um director work all that stuff has been doing really well and the speed and the efficiency that she has learned um, and applied that learning to her career it's it's awe-inspiring to watch but that being said um, there's a reason why I got out of music videos as a full-time gig Uh, the business is really difficult it really is it's very hard to uh, earn a living being a music video director. And I, I actually got so irritated, so frustrated with the process that she's going through and that I'm going through because I'm essentially, we're a unit, you know? So we're all, the two of us are, are dealing with what each other has to deal with, you know? She's gotta put up with whatever I'm going through with the movie prep and I gotta put up with whatever she's going through with the music video stuff. So it just pulls me right the fuck back in. And, and, I, and I get into it, and I just look at how the business works. And like I said, I just got incredibly irritated. I was going to do a whole episode, and maybe you guys can convince me to do so, but I wanted to rant about the, the, the birth and the life of a music video, how, it, how it's created in reality, where it starts, um, how it, it is uh, developed, And then uh, the process of bidding, which is like a fucking nightmare. So the process of bidding and then production all the way through post. It is one of the more intense and taxing emotionally uh, jobs that you can take in this field. I would say that it's even more taxing than doing commercial work is. Because with commercial work, at least they're is a level of cash involved. At least there's a level of understanding that there's a larger corporation behind it. There's a larger company that's got a warehouse full of shit that they need to sell, right? And so there's usually a bit more cash involved with it. There's this, we're still living off of this mystique with music videos that has sort of carried itself over from the 90s, from that time period where... Uh, younger filmmakers, a lot of you listening are like, you know, music videos is a great way to become a director. It's a great way to get into the business of directing. Is it though? Uh, because I can tell you that I haven't met a, uh, movie exec or producer that makes films that gives a a shit about any of the music videos that I've done. They just don't. So if you're getting into it for that reason, that's the wrong reason to get into it. So then the next question or the next response would be, well, I'd love to be a famous music video director. I'd love to be uh, a a name, you know, like a Spike Jones or like a David Fincher, you know, a Chris Cunningham names of uh, all these amazing, influential music video directors from the nineties. Right. And so my response to that would be, okay, what's the name of the guy who directed the weekend music videos? What's his name? And he's the one that worked really hard to rebrand the weekend and helped create that whole broken and busted face. That, that, that whole uh, Las Vegas lounge act that woke up drunk in an alley. Really great fucking videos. I think the best videos of that year. Such a great creative direction for that artist. And the commitment... That those ideas for those videos, the commitment to keep that with not only the album art, but to keep that with the live performances, to keep that all the way through. Who's the guy that directed those? Right. Chances are you don't know. Chances are you have no idea. I don't know. And I've looked them up twice and I can't remember and I didn't write it down on a piece of paper. It's a different time. Music videos aren't the same as they were when we were younger. And that was its own little pocket of time where you have the Finchers, you have the Romanex, you have the godfathers of that world. And so as a younger filmmaker, if you think you're going to get into that game, if you think that getting into this business is going to get you to the point where you're doing music videos that are over $100,000. Music videos that are almost up to a million dollars. Music videos where your take on them is going to be enough to survive that year. (laughs) Then you're barking up the wrong tree. And the same goes for musicians. And this is something that I would say to the musicians that are listening to the show. You really need to reevaluate what music videos are today. And the big thing that has changed music videos, the big thing, the amount of money that, uh, that labels spend on music videos is the fact that labels don't make, or in theory, don't make the same kind of money that they did when they were selling CDs, vinyls, that stuff. Like That was the main income for them. So now when we're dealing with musicians and we hear it all the time, and I'm not going to be specific about this because I don't want to ruin any, any relationships, but I could say straight across the board, it doesn't matter what label, doesn't matter what, uh, you know, uh, management company, it all comes down to statistics and analytics. So if you're a musician and you only have a certain amount of followers on your social media accounts if you only have a certain amount of clicks on a YouTube video these guys are only going to spend a specific amount of money it's the truth of it so chances are if you're a new artist and you don't have a big following a good music video budget for you is going to end up being somewhere between $5,000 and $10,000 that's the reality of it so if you're signed to a label, that's the reality of it. And if you are someone that gets mediocre traffic or decent traffic, let me change that. If you're someone that gets decent traffic, then your video budgets will maybe fall closer to the ten dollars to $15,000, right? And then if you're someone that does great traffic, sells tickets, sells really good merch, then your budgets are falling in the 20,000 30,000 if you're teaming up with another act so if it's two acts on one thing you have both their audiences coming on board maybe you hit 50,000 now there are artists out there that make videos that are a lot more expensive you I don't know the, the numbers for the weekends videos but I assume because of how amazing his tour was after the Starboy uh, release the breakout that not only made him the R&B act that he was for a very specific audience and made him a household name after working with Daft Punk, Uh, his prices went way the fuck up. (laughs) But at that point, you're seeing a lot of the artists themselves invest in their visuals, invest in videos, because they know that if they spend that money on creating a character... That will sell more tickets. That will do more for touring. That'll do more for everything else. Now, COVID's fucked everything up for a lot of acts. And I've talked to some artists who are dealing with their labels, who are using the numbers that come out of COVID where it's like, well, you didn't perform well. It was fucking COVID. Yeah, but you didn't perform well, so we're not gonna give you as much of an advance. It's, uh, yeah. So back to my point here, okay? the young musician, the young artist that wants a music video. Let's say the label says, we're gonna do video, most of the time it's multiple videos, but we're gonna do a video uh, and uh, we've uh, got, I don't know if they tell the artist how much they're spending on it, which is interesting to me. I assume they do, let's pretend they do, but I doubt they do. So uh, we're gonna spend $5,000. Or we're going to spend $10,000. Let's pretend like you're in the $10,000 range. And you as the artist or as somebody who doesn't shoot stuff, you go, okay, well, $10,000 is a good amount of money. That's a lot of money, right? That's a lot of stuff. It's not. And, and let me explain why it's not. And you know what? Let me, let, me, let me rephrase that. It's not that it's not a lot of money. It's that you have to start thinking in a different mindset when you're thinking $10,000. You can't be thinking, I've had this vision of me driving across country in a uh, convertible Corvette uh, and I see this shot of me in the magic hour. A drone shot from behind, like sky level. Maybe it's a helicopter. Maybe it's a drone. Follow me down the street, and then I jump from the vehicle and I dive into the ocean, and then I swim underneath the ocean. You can't be fucking thinking that way. And and I know those of you at home are laughing about that and going, Mike, you're just being a little overly dramatic. I'm not. And I wish I can read to you the briefs that come in for ten to fifteen thousand dollars. I. If I read them to you, I feel like I would just burn any bridges, but they're fucking ridiculous. And what it is, is it's not just the artist, not, they mustn't know. They mustn't know how much money the label's spending because I assume a label wants to keep artists, right? And I assume the label is very, keep your hands out of the shit. We'll run it for you, right? They're gatekeepers. They're in between the artists and the vendors that the artist needs. So it's like, you gotta do two music videos, you gotta do a music video. Don't worry, we've got it covered. We, we know all of the best music video directors. All you need to do is write down some ideas, like what are your thoughts on this video? And what do you think it should be? And, and don't think restrictions, just dig deep, <laughs> right? So I'm sure that the poor artist is sitting there like fresh off of a fucking stage performing, like on a tour bus, in the middle of moving to Los Angeles, whatever your fucking thing is, and you're talking to label and you're like, well, I haven't really thought about it. What does this song mean? Just write down ideas. And they scribble those ideas down on a napkin somewhere and yeah, 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 take those ideas and scribble them on those napkins and toss them in this bag and we'll take care of it from there. I guarantee you that's how it plays out for a lot of artists. So the artist just doesn't realize. They don't realize the hard truths, the truths that we get from the label, where we say the label, look, we might be able to pull this off. Like it just so happens that I know a guy that's got a Mustang and just so happens that I also am shooting something else that requires underwater photography. Like the fucking small miracle of things are lining up for this. So, you know, potentially we can all do this for the love, you know, we're not going to get paid for this, but like we just need like to make it work. We just need an additional like $3,000. That's it. And if you're talking like 15 grand, it's just an additional $3,000. We've heard this specifically. The artist isn't worth that. The artist isn't worth what? The artist, we've projected that the artist is only worth $15,000. We're not going over $15,000. Okay. So do we want to rethink the concept here? Do we want to rethink the treatment here? Well, No, that's what they are. That's what they want. You know, I think that this is a really, from the label, I think this is a really good opportunity for you to roll up your sleeves and get really creative here. Yeah, but there are hard costs involved with things. Yeah, but that's what the artist wants and we're not spending more money. And so this ends up being the dilemma. And most of the time, labels are doing bids right and so the purpose of bids is to get the best price possible yes but also to make sure that you are in the best position for control of the piece right so you want to make sure that each of those people bidding on it know that there are other people bidding on it so the theory is is that they won't be padding it right they're not going to be padding the budget they won't be adding to the budget But the reality of it is, is that it's a desperation. There's a sense of desperation and there's a sense of insecurity, especially with a lot of the younger directors that are out there that are like, fuck, how are they pulling this together? And they're looking at these other videos that are released and they're like, how the fuck did this guy get this drone shot and do this and do that? And so you're in this consistent conflict of like, this is what it costs and this is what I need to do. When at the back end of it all, you just want to be able to sit down with the artist and say to the artist, you've got $5,000, right? Just, if we're going to shoot this traditional music video, like we're going to shoot this with a DP, we're going to shoot this with a crew, like you want the visuals to look like it belongs on Netflix, if that's your vibe, then just to get the team there, and I'm not talking, let's pretend like we're not just talking L.A. prices. Let's pretend like we're talking somewhere else prices. Just to get the team there, to get the camera, the visuals, the stuff in the space, that's $3,000 to $5,000 bare bones, right? So if you're at ten grand, half of it is just to get the thing there that has to roll. The lights there that have to turn on the focus puller there, right? And so when you sit there and you go, well, yeah, but I really don't want handheld. I want a smooth movement that runs through the whole take and the whole shot. That's a Steadicam. That Steadicam ops gonna show up. That's gonna cost you minimum another $1,500. You're $10,000 now, right? So now you're looking at this going, all right, so just for the camera and for the gear and for the Steadicam guy, We're clocking in close to six and a half grand. And I'm playing real loose with numbers here. Don't quote me on this. But you're running in at like six and a half grand. Okay, 10 grand. That leaves us with three and a half thousand dollars. I need money to put outfits on people, on you. I need money to put food in the mouths of the crew. I need money for locations. I need money for that fucking Mustang. I need money for all these different elements. And that's coming out of that. And so then you go and and somehow you figure it out. Somehow you're like, okay, so I can get my friend's fucking Mustang and I get the underwater thing and I get this whole thing. And you go, all right, so with all that, that's going to come to $11,000. And this is pulling fucking miracles. That's going to come to $11,000. And then you go, yeah, and then I got to get paid. I got to get paid something because this is going to go on for you know, you know, a week, two weeks, three weeks of work. I got to get something on this. So reality is, is I should get about 10% of what this video is to 15%, at least of what this video is. So let's say add another $2,000 for me and then, oh shit, I just talked to my business manager and I need workers comp and I need production insurance. Oh, it turns out the label's got production insurance, but I need workers comp. So now workers' comp's gonna cost me to start a minimum of two grand to get started on this. And maybe I'm a production company that has these things, but then as a production company, I have to charge you 10 to, $15, 000, or 10 to 15% of your fucking budget just to cover those operating costs, right? So these numbers start to like really inflate And the artist doesn't know about this. The artist doesn't think about this. you know who thinks about this? Supposedly is the label. But the label doesn't really think about this. They hire what is called a video commissioner, which is somebody who understands how videos are put together, understands how productions work. Oftentimes there's somebody that studied production, studied that thing and went and got a full-time job at a label. And so they're using their skills to be in between that person. And I know a lot of uh, people that work on that side that go into that job initially with the best intentions. Like, I know how much it costs to do these things. I know, I know uh, what the overhead is for these things. I know what a fair price is for these things. But they're dealing with a label. They're dealing with some, <laughs> some guy at the top who's like, the projected numbers for this artist are this. We can't spend more than this on that artist or we won't make a fucking profit if we spend more than this, there's no way we're gonna make a certain amount in clicks on YouTube, on YouTube traffic, and no way we're gonna make a certain amount of this on that. It's all projected. So they're not gonna budge on that. So then that poor video commissioner has to go, well, how the fuck do I make this work? I mean, we're, we're, we're placating this artist and we're, we're making this artist think that we can do anything because they're signed to this label. This is a prestigious label. So we can do whatever that fucking artist dreams up. How, do, how, how does that make sense? Okay, so now I have to go back and I have to fucking strong arm these uh, production companies or directors that are writing treatments for us. So then you get comments like this. Look, we're looking at the budget. It's $3,000 over. We understand that you can't budge on the rates for the camera gear. You can't budge on the rates for the locations, we get that because those people are locked in stone. We were just looking at it and we were thinking to ourselves, what about your rate? Right? So there are a lot of music video directors that listen to this show. You guys all know what I'm talking about. There's this moment where the stress gets put on you as the creative financially where it's, we really want this to happen and we're excited about your passion and how passionate you are with this, but it just, we just can't seem to find a way to fit this into the budget unless you cut your rate. This happens every fucking time. Every fucking time. Anytime a treatment comes out, anytime a brief comes your way, It's like they know that they're offering 10 to 20% less than what this brief would cost at bare minimum to make every time. And so back to what I was saying to the artists that are listening to the show, to the musicians that are listening to the show, wake up a little bit, understand your value at a label, understand, ask the label, ask the people that are making your videos what's my budget what is the budget for this thing and then come to jesus with the fact that over 80 percent of the budgets that exist out there are not equivalent in any way to the to the budgets of the videos from the 90s they're just not so then if you understand that as an artist And you understand that as a filmmaker, and you release that tension, you let go of it, and you go, this doesn't have to look like, you know, uh, P. Diddy's fucking uh, crazy fucking videos. This doesn't have to look like Lady Gaga's videos. This doesn't have to look like any of this stuff. The truth of the matter is, That the people that are tuning in to this are tuning in to listen to my song. They are tuning in to listen to my track. So when you release all that tension and that expectation, and then you go, $10,000, what can we do? Like, is the director any good at just shooting him or herself? Like with her own camera? Why don't we do this on a low rent camera and do a one take? That's cool and creative. OK Go did that for quite some time and did a good job with it. Why don't we just do, why don't we come up with a creative way? How about we do a collage? Or how about we do something that would cost about $4,000 in hard costs, right? Something that would cost around, if you're really good at it, do something that costs around $3,000 in hard costs. And by hard costs, I mean like camera rental, I mean like physical media, like whatever it is that you need. The shit in front of the camera, all that stuff. Outfits. So just think really small. And by thinking small, I don't mean thinking shitty. I don't mean thinking cheap. I mean just thinking small. Contained. Why, if you only have $10,000, would you have a crew of 15 people? Just feeding them alone. And if you had to pay each one of those 15 people $100 a piece... It's scraping out a huge portion of your budget. And then the person that should be getting paid is the person that you want completely committed to this from beginning to end. The reason why you're hiring a director should be for passion, for vision, right? So that person is guiding your ship. That person is taking your idea and flourishing. That person is collaborating with you. So you want them invested. You don't want them halfway through the video to go, fuck this, fuck this. I'm not getting paid enough money for this shit. Fuck this. And that happens on almost every fucking music video, right? The ones for me that it doesn't happen on are the ones where the artists are smart. They understand the limitations of their budget. They don't put expectations on it. They understand that this is just one piece of many for their fucking career, for their future. If you are an artist and you're looking to do music videos, here's what I suggest, especially if you're a new artist, if you're someone that is just starting out, if you're someone that is just signing to a label, don't be unaware. And by that, I don't mean like go watch Criterion and go watch like a bunch of David Fincher things and go, well, what I prefer is steadicam movements that show the ceiling because that's important. No, none of that's important. You're not making fucking movies, right? You're just not. What I would do is follow all the directors that inspire you. So let's say that you are a Fincher fan or you are a Chris Cunningham fan or you are a Spike Jones fan. Follow those directors. Then don't be convoluted into thinking that you're going to get one of them to do your shit because that's a miracle to get that. But if you're slick, you look through who's following those people and you find the young directors that are following those people because chances are those young directors like a lot of the same shit that you do. Now, do this before you're ready to make a music video. Do this... Months ahead of time, years ahead of time, talk to these people, collaborate with these people, start to understand what it is that they need, how they, what their strengths are, what they can pull off. Sometimes it's worth your while to like send them tracks and allow them. If you have the licensing ability to do so, let them use your tracks in movies, let them use your tracks on fucking podcasts, let them use your tracks in different places form relationships with these people because then when you finish that album and you walk out of the fucking mixing room and there's your label and rep that's sitting there in front of you and they're just like it's time to make some music videos you can ask them how much money do we have i understand my value right i understand how many clicks i understand how many people are interested in my stuff what do we have for cash and then when they say well you know chances are you've got like $15,000 for two music videos. You go, great, I want this guy. This person that you've communicated with, this person that you've established a relationship with, this person that understands stuff. Because I'll tell you right now, you take that $15,000 and you go out to the bidding process, you are going to be so fucking unhappy with what comes in. Right? Because most of what's coming in, is coming in from directors who don't know you from a fucking hole in the wall. They're looking at whatever like notes you've scribbled on a fucking napkin and handed to a label that essentially just RARs that shit, sends it to a fucking email to them. <laughs> you can tell I'm older, RAR. Just sends it in an email to uh, like their, their stable of amazing directors and I'm putting up air quotes. Let me tell you, here's, I'm on a rant. Here's what happens. That label person says to you, we've got it covered. We've got the best directors. We work with some of the best people in the world. We got you. Then they take your ideas that you scribbled on a fucking napkin and they bring it, give it to their assistant at this point because labels are very much downsized because they're not making the money that they used to make. So there isn't a whole music video department anymore. Fucking assistant somewhere. And so they hand it to an assistant. and The assistant goes, okay, great. And they go, send it out. And like, like a fishing vessel from Japan they fucking get their nets ready, they get ready to fucking troll the ocean, and they send out emails. And they send out emails to a bunch of different folks. So let's pretend like you're higher echelon. Let's pretend like you're a, a $25,000 budget person, right? They've, aside, they've decided through the analytics and through the numbers that you're worth 25,000 to make a music video. So then they, they send it out to a bunch of different types of folks. Now, in the 2000s, and they still exist now, there are a group of people called music video reps, right? And these are essentially like, quote-unquote, agents. These are people that have either come from the music side or the production side, and maybe they were producers on some things, and they've decided that they have a Rolodex, or no one has a Rolodex anymore. They have a, a contact list, Of directors that is valuable to folks, and so then they will say to whatever that label is, "Hey, um, next time you have a brief, send it to me, and I'll send it to my my stable of well curated directors, right?" And so, as a young director, you know the deal. You're like, "Fuck, a rep just showed up. Oh, my life's different. My life's gonna change. I have a rep now, and uh, she's gonna fucking." Put me out there and sell my shit and do all sorts of stuff. And she's going to pick jobs that are specific for me. She's really going to help develop my fucking career now. So what she says to the label is, you send me the briefs. I'll send it to my people. I'll I'll send you back a stack of treatments. So then they say to her, great, here it is, $25,000, ready to rock. Now, if you're with an honest rep, that rep will go and write an email to their directors and say, we have a $25,000 bid. Let's write some treatments for it. Here's a stack of napkins that the artists wrote their ideas on. Try to decipher these into something. That is your vision, (laughs) and then we'll we'll do it. That's if it's an honest rep. We've worked with reps that are like, cool. So we have a $20,000 music video brief. Where'd that five grand go? We have a $20,000 music video brief for you to write on. So, something interesting to know as directors, but also something interesting to know as the artist. Because now there's money that's disappearing from that budget. So when the artist sees the final video and they go, why did this cost $25,000? Well, you know what I mean? As the bag gets passed around, it gets lighter. Right? So then... That's one outlet. So the the person sending out these emails, that net, they're just like, okay, great. So I'll hit up all the video commissioners that we know that are perfect for this artist. And then I'm going to hit up a different outlet, production companies, because a lot of the labels have relationships with production companies. And by production company, I usually mean a collaborative of a few directors that have formed a production company because essentially they need to have production insurance, workers' comp. They need to have an infrastructure. Maybe they need to have edit bays. They need to have something in place in order for them to do their projects. And so what you do is you collaborate. You bring things together and you build what is called a production company. Now, this isn't all production companies, but I feel like what I'm describing is very specific to music videos. Very specific to music videos. So then you have this production company so then the, the the label will say to them well, it's a $25,000 thing knowing completely that the production company is going to have to take a percentage out of that. So then the production company reps directors they have directors that they work with now on their reps are like the two owners of the company right who are also directors so they're usually first and foremost, and they're the ones that are being put out. And if it's a large enough job, they're gonna go for that first, because that's why they set up the production company. That is the whole purpose of it. If you're a smaller director on that rung, then you get that. So then when the production company contacts you, they tell you that it is $21,000 or whatever it is after they take the percentage out of it, right? So that's the second group of people that your label is sending a net out to. The last and the third group of people are all the young, hungry directors, most of you listening to the show, the young and hungry directors that have interesting work on Instagram, they have interesting work on Vimeo, um, they have connections, they maybe have friends that were in a band and they did a video for that person and they formed a relationship with this label. And they were like, the label said to them, if you, if you do us this favor and you make this happen, then we'll put you in for the bigger and better projects. These are the directors, the men and women out there that aren't repped, don't have agents, aren't with production companies. It is just you, right? The label knows this. The label knows that if they're going to go with someone like that, that doesn't have the prior experience, doesn't have the production insurance, doesn't have all those items, There's a risk. It's also a great way for them to look good. So they say to you, we've got a $15,000 budget. Right? Crazy. So when you're looking at these stacks of treatments, because then what happens is, is all these directors, all these creatives sit down and they look at your napkins, your scribbles on your napkins for stuff. Right. And they're like, okay, so he wrote down unicorns and he, he did this. And so then you're trying to figure this thing out. You're like, well, what could this possibly mean? That's some directors. There are other directors who are like, well, when I listen to the song, I think of the time that my, my brother came back from the Gulf war, you know? And so then they write this whole story about that. So they put together this stack of treatments and each one of these little outlets sends these treatments into the net into that fishing net that the label has and they pull them all in and they stack them up and then they the commissioner will go through it and just say, hey yeah this one's trash this one's good this one's trash and i think the artist is going to like this and they put together a stack and that stack of treatments comes down in an email these days uh in front of an artist and the artist has to go through them figure out which one you like Figure out which one you want to work on. And anytime I've talked to a musician that does it that way, they're always dumbfounded with how ridiculous and how detached, emotionally detached all these fucking treatments are. Go back and listen to like episode two or three of our epi- of our show with uh, Jesse Leach from Killswitch and we talk about it on, on that one. Completely detached. Where they're sitting there going, why the fuck are they writing about the Gulf War? Or... They're looking at it going, why are there six treatments in here about fucking unicorns? I just was sketching nervously on that thing. That doesn't mean anything, right? There's no connection whatsoever between the artist and the musician, or between the artist and the director, right? So then most of the time, the artist is like either forced into like having to pick because the the rollout's happening, so pick the closest thing to it, Or the artist is like, can we just hire the the dude that I know to do this? This is all ridiculous. That method is broken. That method is in place to basically feed the middlemen, the gatekeepers. That method is there to create these other jobs, these in-between jobs. Why like, would you, would you go through that process to pick out an amp that you were playing your guitar through? Would you go through that process to pick out a singer? Maybe, you know, you really need to look at a music video director the same way you would look as a, at a record producer, somebody that is going to make sure you sound the way you sound. Someone is going to produce the album. Someone's going to guide you into the vision that you've set. Uh, someone that's going to auto-tune you to sound like you're perfect. All that's really important. The same thing goes for the visual aspect of your stuff, and that's the job. This these days, that's the job of a creative director. But you really need to start thinking smartly about it. Why do it the old way? I don't know. I I, I didn't plan on getting into this rant but it just sort of came out and it's kind of half-assed, so I apologize for that because, you know, I was gonna write this down and do this the right way, but you know what? This is therapeutic for me, so you just gotta deal with it. And as a reward for that, I'm gonna play you another track from the new face <laughs> I love that they're like, Mike, you're just advertising us after shitting on the business. Well, that's the way I do it, fellas. cool right very cool Um, like I said these guys are killing it I am so fucking pumped to have this album Uh, and uh, I'm bragging about it I hope you guys can find it I hope you guys can uh, hit your local uh, record shop and see if it's still on the shelves Um, and I'm sure that there were guys and girls that picked it up early and they're selling it for fucking You know, a couple hundred bucks on fucking eBay. Fuck those people. You know? Um, See if you can get your hands on it. Uh, Like, I don't know if they're going to release this stuff online. Who knows if they do or don't. But uh, it's fucking really good. It's really great. Um, And uh, I'm pumped to be able to at least play a couple of tracks from you guys. Or for you guys. And uh, let's move on to some, some better stuff. But before I do, look. I just got into a rant on this stuff because it it hurts me. It hurt. I, I realized the other day as I'm sort of processing how I how I handle my 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 old man anger issues because it just seems like as I crossed forty, I just started to get really irritated, and it sucks because I don't like being that person. I don't like being angry and irritated about things, but. It occurred to me that I get mad. I get really fucking mad when people that I love are being taken advantage of. And I don't just mean, you know, my family or the people that I like, I emotionally love, like Gina. I mean, people that I respect. And, you know, a lot of you that listen to the show, I love you guys. I love the passion that you guys all have. I love the, the urgency that you have to, to live a life differently than most people do. to to follow your dreams to build these things and I get fucking pissed when there are people out there that take advantage of of us and uh, people out there that are either taking advantage of us by uh, not paying for your services not valuing your time that always annoys the fuck out of me but also when uh, you have these people that are manufacturing gear and putting things together that are must-haves and it doesn't fucking matter and i've got sponsors on this show um and people that i believe in and, and products that i use yes i will tell you about it but i'm never going to tell you that you need to have those fucking things to make it in this business you don't need to have those things to be be an artist i just listened to a really great podcast uh one of my favorite podcasts wtf with mark Marin. um And I listened to his recent episode with uh, Rick Rubin. I'm almost done with it. I was riding my bike this morning listening to it. And uh, I love Rubin's philosophy on working with artists and creating things. And for those of you who don't know, Rick Rubin is a producer. And most of you who are listening to this episode because you wanted to hear some Czarface stuff, y'all know who Rick Rubin is, right? Other than like creating amazing stuff with the Beastie Boys and running all the way up through Johnny Cash and fucking, he's worked with everybody. He is sort of like the guru, the guy you go to these days. If you're an older act and you want to reinvent yourself, if you're someone that wants to redefine your sounds, you go to Rick Rubin. Like the dude is amazing. I'd love to get him on the show and talk to him about stuff, but go listen to his interview with Mark Marin. It's fucking great. Um, and he makes a really good point there. Uh, And I'm going to fuck it up. But Marin said, asked him like, you know, have you ever been disappointed? Have you ever been disappointed in what it is that you end up making? And he goes, yeah, but at the end of the day, I'm a collaborator. I'm someone that is here to help bring an artist's vision to life. I'm someone that is here to help reinvent the way someone looks or comes off or the story that someone is telling And when you're for hire, when you're not making a movie on your own, and you're not doing your own personal project, that's the mentality that you got to have, right? You're a collaborator. You're there to make someone else look good. You're there to take someone else's story and bring life into it. Now, of course, you're going to bring in your personal experiences. You're going to bring in your personal preferences. You're going to bring in your taste. You're going to bring that all to the table, but you can present that at the table and the artist is still going to say yes or no, right? They're going to still cherry pick these different items because at the end of the day, it is the artist or the label that is paying for a music video. It is the client or the brand that is paying for a commercial. And they're coming to you because they either have seen your work and they like your work and they think that your work can be applied to what it is that they need. Or they're coming to you because they need your experience. They need your vision. They need your passion. They need you to excite them. And if you're thinking about it that way, as a music video director, I think you're going to be a lot less disappointed you're going to be a lot less angry. And I know that when I get angry, when I'm doing things like this, it usually comes down to a couple of essentials. One, I'm not getting paid. That is the biggest, that is the biggest way for me to get mad. And oftentimes when we're bidding, because of the way that the bidding is set up, the bidding war is set up, Sometimes we'll hit a point where we fall in love, so in love with the, an idea, with an idea or an experience, a potential experience, and we sit there and go, I really want to do this though, and they just can't find the money. I'll just do it. I'll just do it. So you, you do that. Now, it isn't about caving in. It's not about you know maintaining self-respect it's it's just about turning your back on what is coming down the pike what is coming down the highway at you which is even though you're caving and you're changing you're giving in to this thing and you're 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 giving yourself to this right which in in my mind would mean that like Everybody respects this. Everybody's on board. Everybody understands that this is full hands on deck. And if the director is, is, is giving up his rate, that, that, that means something. That means this is a different type of production. This isn't your standard, there's plenty of money to go around deal. I'm not going to be coming back with like fucking eight revisions for the edit. And I'm not going to be demanding all these fucking details. I'm not going to do that stuff without offering to pay for it because I know that the director has forfeited his fee for this. That's what I expect. And I expect that of other people when I do it. And it's wrong of me. It's unfair to the people for me to expect them to live up to that expectation. And it's unfair to myself to expect it to go that way because it doesn't. And yes, there are rare moments where that has happened. I have worked for free. I have made things for artists that I have had long running relationships with. And it's great because there's a, a sense of respect. And I'll tell you, it helps because those artists are very much like, we get it. We're in your hands. We're not going to give you shit. We're not going to fucking treat this as if we're paying you. Like, be patient with us. We get it. That's helpful. Because at the end of the day, productions, as you know, if you tried to do one yourself, they never go as planned. You put together a budget. It shifts. It flexes. Someone loses a piece of gear. That's fucking $500 that you didn't account for. Uh, Someone drops a light. Now you have to pay a deductible. That's something that you didn't account for. Um, Two of the actors fell off the fucking planets. Now you have to find two others. And the rate that you were going to offer them, which was a sandwich, now has changed to $300 a piece. You just know that productions are fluid. And so when you lie to yourself as a filmmaker and you say, I can do it for this rate and you have no padding. You're just setting yourself up for anger, right? And what, what ends up happening is like you get halfway through the video and you start to get tired and you start to feel beaten down and you start to feel worn out because of the stress, because of the stress of the thing that you agreed to do and you're not able to pull it off the way you thought you were. And so you're scrambling and that scramble and stress starts to build You start to get angry. You start to get bitter. Right? This happened with me. Doing music videos. I got bitter. I got bitter because I felt like the reward wasn't worth the anguish. Now, whose fault is that? Is it the fault Of the labels not paying enough money for videos? I don't necessarily think that's the case. The label is a business. They're a better business person than I am. They understand their restrictions. They understand what they can and can't do. They get that. Is it my fault? I don't know. I would think so. Maybe I shouldn't have been so desperate. Maybe when I looked at the project, I decided... To listen to my, my instincts And just go like This isn't it Maybe when I offered To do it for free And I read the room and, I, and just The red flag started to show up Why didn't I back out Right And I'm not specifically talking about Any job It's just I guess I'm, what I'm trying to do Is I cross into 43 Is I'm trying not to be bitter I'm trying not to be angry I'm trying to be open I'm trying to 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 maintain that love for creation that I have to maintain that wide-eyed love for just for, for 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 making things and so I can be the bitter old fuck that so many of us are that have been trying to make music videos that you come out of like the late 90s and into the early 2000s. All of us that really got fucking shit on because of the recession and everything else. The changing of finances, the having to restructure how commercials were made. And we just got fucking, we got a shitty hand. And a lot of it had to do with the economy, right? And so the aftermath of that like, like uh, post-traumatic stress. The aftermath of that is, is, is bitterness and anger. And you don't want that, you don't want that to be there. And I guess I, I, I saw it, I saw it this week or last week when I was doing these videos and I was seeing these pitfalls and seeing these things that were, that were gonna happen. And, and I got mad. I got mad because, you know, the person that I love and the person that I respect is going through it. Um, and I want to just protect her. And I want to protect her vision. And I want to protect all those elements. And, and that's a big part of it. But then I realized that I was m- almost as destructive as the Dilemma. Because I was bringing all my experience and all of my issues, which is helpful, but then I was also bringing a lot of my anger into it, which then then becomes stressful. Who's to say that her dealing with these dilemmas isn't going to go a different way? She's a different person, it's a different time. Why do I need to project? What happened to me on her? You know? I don't know. I haven't quite figured it out. Getting a little deep on this episode. But this is what's been going on in my head. I'm trying to figure out... You know, if I'm going to play in this in this world of music videos. If I'm going to play in what the cynical side of me says. this shitty fucking business that is... Uh, music videos because it's a it's a fucking real shitty business right now um i have to find out what's fun about it again and creatively i think i know how to do it i think i know how to make it fun i know how to you're talking to a scrappy motherfucker you're talking to a person that knows how to make five bucks look like five thousand like i know how to make stuff look good that's what I do. That's the world that I have grow up in. And that's how I've come up as a, as a, uh, as a director and as a filmmaker is like taking no money and making it look like it's a, a ton of money. But that's only part of my job. The other part of my job is being a business person and understanding how to set expectations and understanding how to set my own fucking expectations. yeah I don't know man how do you guys feel about this is this interesting to you let me know write to me on Instagram and, and uh, be like look man <laughs> we were really digging a lot of the episodes of the show that you were doing some of them were funny and you were upbeat um, but uh, this shit fuck man you're dredging us through like you promised that you play some Zarface tracks and then you're running us through the mud on this long rant about music videos. But you know what? I've always said that this show is this. This show is, is an inside look into what it's really like and what it is that I'm dealing with and what it is that you're dealing with. Because I know there's a lot of you listening to the show that feel the same way. I've talked to you. Um, and you know, you end up young and hungry. That's how you start is young and hungry. And we've heard this from people that are like, we don't have the money. So let's find some young and hungry people. That's a predatorial thing, by the way, but let's find some young and hungry people to make this. And so you're that young and hungry person and you're always trying to, to counteract your own insecurities. Like, who am I to say that I'm worth this money? Who am I to say that I'm a music video director? I've never directed a music video. Who am I to say that I uh, belong in the same world as a David Fincher? Who am I to say that I don't have to work a regular job, right, you have all of these insecurities which you bring with you every time you look for a job every time you bid on a job, every time you write a treatment or write something down, you're dealing with those insecurities. Well, what I would love to do is get this on my reel in order to prove it to myself. That's part of growth. I'm not shitting on you for that. That's what happens. That's what happens to all of us. But you have to acknowledge that. You have to understand that. You have to look at it and go, what am I bringing to this thing? This idea, this budget, this treatment, this brief, what am I bringing to it from my own insecurities? And is that helping or hindering the process? Is that hazing my vision or is that enhancing my outlook? Think about that. Because there have been times that I have brought my own insecurities like, I need to do this. So I'm going to do this on this thing. And I force it on that thing. And sometimes it's wrong. And the shit that I put myself through to do that thing with the thought that it's going to change everything. If I just do it this way, it's going to change everything. I just have to shoot it like this and I'm going to release it to the world and the world's going to see it and my phone's going to be ringing off the hook. I will have a video commissioner. I will have a manager and an agent because I did this thing that I need to prove to myself. At the end of the day, at its best, what you're going to do if you do it well is just prove to yourself that you can do it. Those other things, chances are they're not gonna come out. No one's gonna call you. It's not gonna change the world. Who's the guy that directed the new weekend videos? Keep that in mind. As we're coming out of COVID, We're bidding on things because there's a lot of things out there, there's a lot of people that want to make stuff, but there's a whole lot of new analytics and there's a whole lot of like, well, based upon the performance of your last album, but that was during COVID. Yeah, but you know, you've gone from being a 20,000, $25,000 music video guy to like a, I don't know, 12,000, you know, that's what we're going to be handed a lot of. Right? Because everybody's still unsure. Are we, is the world opening back up? Are we going to be able to make money? Are people going to be able to go to concerts? Right? How long is that going to last? I mean, I, I don't know the specifics, but Gina was just telling me about a bunch of fucking musician celebrities that all got fucking COVID, <laughs> that were are all hanging out together. This is all real. In the background. So, I don't know. A positive way to look at this is this. Assess the reality of everything. Look at what it is that you're working with, whether it's a budget, look at an idea or an opportunity and ask yourself realistically, what would I like to get from this? Is it some money? Make sure you charge for your time. Is it the opportunity to work with uh, a full crew? make sure that this thing will enable a full crew to happen. Is it just to get a music video done? Okay. Is this the right artist to do it for? If you've already done a bunch of different free music videos and you're at that point where you're willing to do another free music video, why? What is it that you need? And I'll tell you this, man, (laughs) uh, at the end of the day, what makes a successful music video, which, what, what rises the numbers on a YouTube channel for a music video or on a YouTube video is the song and the artist and whether or not people give a fuck about it. Look at our Mashuga video for Bleed. Uh, what are we at? Like 20 million or something? It's up there pretty high. I have nothing to do with the fact that it's 20 million. Let's be real. I, direct, I co-directed that video. I have nothing to do with the fact that it's 20 million. The song has everything to do with that. The artist has everything to do with that. And so if you're picking videos and videos that you're going to do discounted, or you're going to give up your rate in order to make it happen on pick a good song, pick a good artist. Don't just choose anything. You know what I mean? All right. Anyway, as promised, let me move on from this topic. If you guys want to hear more from this, if you guys want to hear more flushed out rant, let me know. Uh, write to me on Instagram and tell me what's up with that. But good news. Let's move on to some good news. Uh, I just heard yesterday from my old buddy, Rudy Hippolit, director Rudy Hipplett. Uh Him and I have been working together for years. I've known it. He's my oldest client and one of my oldest work friends. Um, we've been working for fucking like 20 years. We've known each other. It's been a long fucking time. I've shot, as a cinematographer, he's one of the few guys that I have worked with, uh, or still work with, might even still work with. Um, and I shot two of his films. I shot a movie called Push Madis, Madison versus Madison, which was essentially a Hoosiers Gone Wrong, right? It's a story of like high school basketball team. I think it was in Manipan. Was it in Manapan? Oh my God, it's been so long. But anyway, uh, shot a a movie about a basketball team that had rival gang members in it. It was full of rival gang members. And it was all about uh, this really strong team that uh, couldn't reach the finals. They couldn't get there. So it was a really great movie, very embedded with Coach Wilson, who uh, is a personality within himself, Uh, meeting him. Uh, changed the way the entire way I shot that piece. It was just like, it suddenly, I was like, this needs to be shot like a fucking Tony Scott movie because he is like a train. He speaks like a train. He talks like a train. He runs like a train. The guy's energy is intense. Um, And so we did that film, which did well. You know, I know it got on a bunch of different uh, networks. It went on on demand. It did very well. And so I teamed up with him again on a, film that, uh, documentary, another documentary that really digs into the gangs of Boston. And it's, uh, a movie called this ain't normal. And, uh, it was really fun to shoot. I I got to embed myself with them, uh, for about two years, uh, into the quote unquote dangerous parts of Boston. What's so fascinating about Boston is that, um, you walk two blocks and you're in a fucking ghetto and then you walk two more blocks and you're in like the most expensive brownstones of like South Boston, you know? Um, so it was really fascinating to me and I, I really loved the pass that I got to sort of immerse myself as like a middle-class white kid, immerse myself in, um, these, quote-unquote, more dangerous neighborhoods. And what I learned is that they're not. (laughs) They're not these dangerous spots. They're not these places that uh, the suburbanites are just like, don't go to fucking Dorchester or don't go to Mattapan or, you know, don't go to these spots where it's dangerous. That's where the gangs are and the gangs are going to shoot you and the gangs are going to rob you. It's bullshit. Most of the gang violence, if not all the gang violence, is gang-on-gang members. And a lot of these kids uh, are still playing out beefs that existed from their fathers and their uncles. And they don't even fucking know what they're about anymore. You know, those guys are fucking incarcerated and they have no idea why they're fighting. Um, And uh, it was interesting. We got to hang out with uh, a bunch of different uh, gang members and then we got to hang out with the uh, street community um, not the street community what the fuck was the name wasn't street smart but it's been a while since we did this because we finished this in 2018 2019 Um, so there's a group of uh, ex-cons there's a group of concerned citizens that uh, formed this company or formed this group that would act as in-betweens like uh, father figures for these gang members that would Uh, meet up with them and help them do basic things like, you know, uh, you're having trouble reading. Maybe your eyesight's fucked. I'll take you to get an eye exam or uh, let me help you get your driver's license. And they also acted as mediaries between the different factions. And so they would be in between often at different events or different like public events. And they were fascinating. So I got to ride with those guys and see how they handle things and, and to see the lack of funding and the lack of uh, understanding that comes from the political side of things, Um, and then how these uh, men and women are trying to keep a sense of safety and a sense of uh, family within these neighborhoods where family's broken, right? These are young teens that are going through everything that i went through as a young teenager except they're doing it on the street because their families are oftentimes it's a mom a single mother that's got to work three two three jobs and so she's not around so the kid is a turnkey kid right comes in and out of his apartment uh and then doesn't want to just sort of sit in this like crappy spot that they live in he wants to be out and wants to be with his friends and so he's living all those dramas that I live behind closed doors he's living them on the street under the eye under the watchful eye of the police under the watchful eye of other gang members so it's a pretty dangerous scenario for a lot of these kids and often you're born into a gang specifically because you were born on a street and then this will blow your mind There's over 125 or something gangs or were at the time in Boston. I think it's something like that. You got to check this movie out. Um, And the good news is it just got picked up by Showtime. So big shout out to Rudy. Big shout out to Coach Wilson. Big shout out to the crew, the team behind it. Um, And I know like Malik and... Tony Fernandez and everybody that worked on the piece with me as far as the camera crew is concerned. Um, Big day. It's really cool. And uh, keep your eyes out for it. I don't know when the premiere will be. I'm sure I'll post about it on uh, my Instagram. But uh, look out for This Ain't Normal, directed by Rudy Hippolyte. And I got to tell you this right now. Rudy is, as a director, I've had him on the show. Uh, go check out episode eighty-three, and we we briefly talk about this stuff. I should have him on again. Um, but Rudy is 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 a gentleman. He's one of the best guys that I've been able to collaborate with because he knows how to put talented people around him. He knows how to get out of the way, but he also knows how to embed himself. He comes with so much empathy and understanding, and so he knows how to put himself in these neighborhoods and to convince um, these folks to tell and share their stories. Uh, he's a great dude. Uh, the last piece I, I worked on three things with him. I shot uh, some of the early stuff for his new film. I think he's doing on barber shops, which was fun. It was a lot of fun. And I've got so many stories about uh, being in these neighborhoods. You know, you, you would go to a park in one of the roughest neighborhoods in Boston, right? You'd go to a park and you'd see all these kids hanging out at a park and you'd see this guy in his forties, like older black gentleman, show up and set up a barbecue and he'd just start making hot dogs and start making hamburgers and hand them out. You know, you do that shit in a fucking white neighborhood They'd call the cops and be like, there's a fucking child molester out there handing out hot dogs to kids. you are not here, man. And the food. Oh, you know I'm such a food fucking nerd. The food I had was so great. I've got so many good stories about the food that we had on sets. We walked in. I'm not going to remember the specifics, but I'll give you the overview. We walked into this spot. Where was it? Was it in Dorchester. We walked into the spot that was like a Caribbean. So it was like a Caribbean vibe. We go in and it's like, ah, it just seems very like, like schlockily put together. And I don't mean that in a disrespecting way, but it just seemed like it was just sort of put together. There were a couple of like glass countertops with nothing underneath them. It looked like maybe they would would be like presenting desserts or food in there or whatever the fuck it was. And this place was just like, I don't want to say it was a shithole, but it w- it just felt that way, right? So you walk in, and uh, we're like, what's going on? And they're like, this this food is amazing. This food's going to blow your mind. Okay, you got me. And so he goes over to the counter, talks to this woman. Uh, I, th- I don't know if she was from the islands, but she definitely had an accent. And she was just like, you guys want food? And we're like, yeah, okay. And so... This is whole production where they bring out like a folding table and plastic chairs and they set it up inside of the shop, and so she just walks around and she's like, "What do you want?" <laughs> and I'm loving this, right? Because you can't get an experience like this. This is, you know, uh, a once in a lifetime kind of thing. I'm like, what do you mean, what do I want? There's no menu in here. Like, what, what do you got? What is it that you make? You know? She's like, I do a chicken that's really great. And I do this, this is really great. And I was like, yes, yes. Whatever it is that you're going to make, yes. This experience to me is so great. And so uh, she takes off. And she goes in the back. And we're there for a while, hanging out, telling stories, sitting around on these plastic chairs or wherever we were in this space. And this woman, and I think like her daughter or her son, I can't remember, go in the back and they, they from fucking scratch, cook us a meal. And they come out with like this jerk chicken, and lay it all out. We have like a family style meal in this spot. It was just amazing. And how like respectful and uh, excited to share they were. And this is just one of many stories. We were doing the barbershop movie and uh, Rudy knows what a food fucking junkie I am because we've been friends long enough. And he's like, I got a surprise for you for lunch today. And I'm like, I fucking hope so, dude. Because I've been doing handheld shit for you on a dock where your line of questioning goes for 40 fucking minutes. So this camera is just pounding my leg into my fucking hip. So the food better be awesome, you know, and I'm joking with him, but I'm also not joking. Uh, And so uh, he's like, yeah, I've got the, I've got a food truck coming. So in my head, I'm like, okay, that's cool. He's got a food truck. So maybe he's got like one of those, like, uh, what do they call it? Like a Katina truck or, you know, the fucking dudes that come around with the fucking uh, the horn. They show up and they drive up and they have like a couple pizza boxes in the back and they have like hot dogs Bags of chips, you know what I'm saying? You see those all the time at like construction sites. That's what goes in my head. Got a food truck coming up, okay? And we're we're in the type of neighborhood. It's not like we're shooting in uh, you know like Red Hook or or some spot where like the food truck is probably like run by some fucking like French trained chef, you know? That was like you know I can't get a fucking uh, restaurant because I don't want to pay the f- the, you know, a couple million dollars to start this spot. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do a food truck. It's not like John Favreau's chef, right? That's not what I'm thinking. This is in the neighborhood for it. So I'm thinking more blue collar. You know, like like our truck is just wrapping up at the fucking mechanic shop down the street. And then whatever hot dogs and hamburgers he's got left, it's coming over to us. Whatever, it's fine. So then uh, we're shooting, we do this stuff. Where he's like, lunchtime. He's so excited. He's got this look in his eyes. He's got a smile on his face. He's like, it's lunchtime. Okay. So uh, put down the camera, walk outside, and there's a white, unmarked box truck out there. And I'm like, okay, okay. So we go over to this box truck, and you know, you open the back, the fucking big door opens, and inside there, there's this is really skinny, very adorable dude with an apron on and he's got like folding tables, like really, you know, cheap folding tables lining the inside of this truck. And he's got a bunch of, uh, tin serving trays with, with, um, tin foil over them. Right. Sorry. I'm hanging up my phone. Fuck off phone. So he's got tin foil over these serving trays. And so I'm like intrigued, right? Because there are a couple thoughts that run through my head, right? There's this guy in the back of a dirty old box truck with folding tables. And it's like, there are no health codes here. (laughs) There's no health codes that's going on. And I'm just sort of like looking around going, is this like a, is this a diarrhea lunch? (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, Ooh, okay. All right. I mean, normally I'd just jump right in here, but I am, I have like a whole other six hours of handheld work. What's going on? So I cautiously walk over and I'm just like, what do you got? And the guy's very nice, very excited. He's like, I've got all sorts of stuff. You want ribs? You want chicken? I've got chicken thighs. I've got chicken wings. I've got macaroni and cheese i've got all this stuff and the guy is just peeling back this tinfoils and there are these trays these family style trays full of some of the best looking food and the smells my god the smells that were coming out of the back of this truck and you know being someone that cooks his his food all the time there's there's a lot of different smells coming out of here, like a lot of different seasonings that I don't normally use. And I was just intrigued. It's like, is that Indian? right? Is that Caribbean? I'm like, what is this that we're getting? Um, And so I immediately (laughs) toss out the notion that I have to do camera work (laughs) after this lunch. And I'm like, I want to try fucking everything on this truck. And so he starts to make me a plate, plantains, like fucking rice, like uh, rice and beans and plantains and fucking chicken thighs. And like there was some seafood in there, which I was like squinting my eyes at going, should I try this? And it was all amazing. And as, as I had this plate and I put this plate in my lap, which is like, yeah, I'd say, you know, let me exaggerate a little bit. Eh, five pound fucking plate. Right. It might as well have been Place that on my lap. I look at this and I look at Rudy and I go, so what did you just hire this guy? Like, did you hire this guy to make all this food and put it in the back of a box truck? And he goes, No. This guy drives around. And I'm not telling you who he is, so I'm not I'm not ruining his day. This guy drives around and he sells shit out of the back of a box truck, and that's how he makes money. He's got no license for it, he's got no health codes, nothing. And that's what he does. And it's the best fucking food. It's the best fucking food. And uh it was. So I, I don't know. I went off on that tangent just to let you guys know that when you watch his movie, this ain't normal, and you watch Rudy's stuff, just know that the reason why I said yes, as a guy who's pursuing directing and as a guy who basically is is dealing with his own projects most of the time, the reason why I said yes, I will shoot your movies. I will spend, you know, two years you know, giving away three, three nights every other month or a weekend here or there, I will go and embed myself in, quote-unquote, the most dangerous neighborhoods in this city because the adventure that is making films with Rudy Hippolyte is the best. It is the best. And uh, if, if you ever, as a shooter, as a cinematographer, if you are ever looking for a director to team up with someone that will respect you someone that will inspire you someone that will will introduce you to life-changing experiences he's the guy you want to work with there you go Rudy that is how I respect that is how much I respect you and that is the endorsement I give for his new film so keep your eyes open for this ain't normal which will be on showtime Uh, I think soon. I'll let you guys know. And for for having to sit through all of that, let me see if I can do this. I'm going to fucking break my rules here, and I'm going to play you another track. Thanks for listening to today's episode of me just sort of ranting and raving and, and uh, I don't know, maybe it's sort of like a therapy session that I'm doing in public, which I shouldn't do, but whatever, man. Um, I a big shout out to, uh, Lance, my buddy, Lance and George for, uh, uh, coming and hanging out and surprising me on my birthday. Um, and for obviously Gina, the best in the world. You know, she's been so involved with like concepting and producing and directing two music videos a day apart, two completely different concepts, two completely different treatments, two completely different crews. Uh, And seeing how she was able to pull it all together, uh, I can't wait till you guys see these new videos. You'll see uh, how intense and how amazing her work is on them. (laughs) so good, George. Um, And you'll be able to see the work, but she also uh, just took the day off and cooked for me all day, which was really great. And she made us a great meal. What did we have? We had like swordfish. uh, And then we had these lentils, which were really great, charred vegetables. um, And then she made like a giant (laughs) Pop-Tart for the cake, which was great. And the food was really cool. And then... I really wasn't expecting it. I thought I was just going to hit the record store, which I did. I, I I picked up way too many albums. She picked up a couple albums for me. Uh, Right now our vinyl collection is very full, which is great. Um, And then I thought I was just going to come back and take some naps, like an old fucking man, uh, and try to recover from like two ridiculous days of of filming. And uh, it turns out that Lance came over. Lance came over and his buddy George, who just moved out here to California and we hung out, drank beers and played vinyls. And it was so much fucking fun. Those of you who follow me on Instagram, you guys saw some of the videos, the ridiculousness. And that was just the three of us, the four of us hanging out. And, uh, it was a really fun, it was a really fun night. Um, and, uh, you know, this isn't the end of it. There are so many of us that have our birthdays in July right now. Uh, my buddy Rick Dars just had his birthday. Um, we're going to continue the celebrations for the next couple of weeks. And uh, we'll see how things go with COVID. Um, but, uh, yeah. So thank you, everybody, that uh, sent me birthday wishes. And um, I saw it. I appreciate it. I tried to respond to each and every one of you. Um, big shout out to you guys for that. Um, and before I go, let's see, what else did I have on my list? Where are we at here? It's a nice long episode. Um, yeah. If you want to know more about Alex Rodriguez and Record Safari, go listen to episode 123, where we talk about how he drove across country and g- grabbed all those vinyls. It's a really great fucking episode. We also talk about a love of vinyls and a love of records. So definitely check that out. If you're a big Czarface fan, uh, check out my two episodes that I've done with the guys. I did one with just uh, DJ 7L. Me and George sat down in episode 45 in one of his record shops back in Boston. Um, And this was right when I was having a crisis about music and how I was like, fuck, man. I just am so far from music. Help me find music again, George. Um, And uh, he did a really good job of that. And uh, very soon after that episode, I ended up uh, starting to buy vinyls again. I know Gina approached him, so my record player, I think George, picked out uh, and sent some vinyls too. So big shout out to you, George. Thank you for uh, getting me out of my fucking funk when it comes to music. And then if you want to listen to Seamus and George and I talk about uh, the last music video that we did for Zarface, that is on episode 74 of the show, so uh, lots of content for those newcomers. And if you're looking for this, if you're looking for an easy way to sort of sift through it, if you want to see the supplemental material that I pulled together for these episodes, visit inlovewiththeprocess.com, and uh, I've broken it up into categories. So check out the music section, and you'll find all the Zarface stuff, and and I think uh, even the Alex Rodriguez mm-hmm. thing is in there too. So definitely check all that out. Um, let's see, let's see if I can leave you with one last story. What else has been going on? Um, I actually hung out, uh, which was, which was fun. It was like kind of an accidental hangout. Um, I ended up hanging out with my buddy, Chris Candy. Um, yes, it's John Candy's son, Chris Candy, but, uh, Chris is a great actor and he is, part of he's the second half of the bumper to bumper podcast which is like him and rick darge um and i got to be on that show but i couldn't hang out with chris because he was in the different car <laughs> so i got to uh, scare the shit out of rick uh pretending like i brought booze while we were driving recording a podcast if you haven't seen it yet uh i'll put a link below um but uh chris and i got to hang out we went and had a couple of beers and then uh he randomly invited me to a midnight screening of Kill Bill at Tarantino's Theater, which is what, the Vista? Is that what they call it? Is, it? is it the Vista? No, it's the New Beverly. It's the New Beverly. I think he's buying the Vista, but it's at the New Beverly. Uh, and here's the thing. One of the best parts about living in Los Angeles as a filmmaker is that there are a lot of really great little communities and cinemas, like uh, locally owned or Tarantino owned cinemas, that are screening older films um the secret movie club episode of the podcast that i did uh those guys were putting on like pop-up drive ins they were putting on uh they're they're still doing like uh screenings in different venues out here in california and like i went i saw the thing um i uh, saw a little bit of back to the future and uh what was the other one we watched Anyway, uh, those guys are really great. And then uh, very excited about New Beverly. And I've heard about New Beverly Cinema. I had talked about that way back earlier on the show when I was hanging out with Mark from Coolidge Corner Theater, for those of you in Boston. I was hanging out with Mark there, and him and I were talking about the New Beverly and how all those program directors kind of know each other. Um, And so I've been dying to go to the New Beverly and I was super bummed out when COVID struck and uh, I wasn't able to do it and so you bet your fucking ass once uh, the movie theaters opened uh, I was like fuck yes and I saw the listing of all the stuff that was coming out at the New Beverly Um, but they sell tickets in such a weird way they know that they don't have to be accessible (laughs) let's use that word they know that they're probably going to sell out, right? Because of the whole movie nerd thing. If there's if there's a city where uh, those theaters are going to sell out, it's Los Angeles, right? Um, so I was trying to stay on it. I saw their lineup. And they had some fucking shit this month that I was really excited about. They had like a Steve McQueen night where they were going to play The Getaway and Bullet. And there's a lot of you guys listening have said to me that you want some recommendations on movies to see. All right check out the getaway right so steve mcqueen Allie mcgraw uh directed by sam peckinpah right amazing director like if you like tarantino you going to love sam peckinpah right go back check that movie out so fucking great the action sequences are great in that movie the vibe is great the music is great the editing is great um, very much influenced Steven Sodenberg for quite some time. Um, so they were playing the getaway and they were playing bullet. And I know a lot of, you know what bullet is. There've been plenty of memes of bullet out there. Bullet is one of the most influential car chase scenes through San Francisco, a car chase sequence that has inspired all these stunt choreographers since. If you are talking to guys that are driving a, up vehicle through your movie you walk over to them you talk about bullet and they're like i love that movie it's such a great movie for that but it's also a really good performance piece for steve mcqueen he's at like the peak of his game in that film very quiet very stoic his sort of acting his influence like ryan gosling fucking uh, brad pitt right there's like a whole group of dudes that are just like steve mcqueen i want to be steve mcqueen you know And Bullet is so fucking good. Who's the bad guy in that? Was it Shaw? Was it, is his name Charles Shaw? I don't know. I'm not going to pull it up. But anyway, New Beverly was like double bill. Fucking Bullet, the getaway, I'm in. I got to fucking get my hands on those tickets. I want to go see those. They had two nights. I'm like, I'm going to get into one of them, right? I've got two nights for that. Then they were also screening, a little bit later, they were screening... Uh, The Hunger. The Hunger. I don't know if you guys have seen this movie. You should. Write this down. David Bowie. Susan Sarandon. Who was the other actress? It'll come to me. Tony Scott's first movie. Movie about vampires. Tony Scott's first movie. So if you like Man on Fire and if you like Top Gun Watch The Hunger, because at least aesthetically, you could see where that stuff came from. The movie's fucking great. So they had this great list, whole month schedule of all these really good movies. And so I was just keeping on it, right? Go to their website, not for sale. Go to the website, not for sale. Go to the website, not for sale. The one fucking day that I go ride my bike a little bit later in the morning, I come back, go to the website, sold out, all fucking sold out everything's fucking sold out i'm like what the fuck how is it all gone all of it so it was a huge bubble burst (laughs) to say the least so when chris texted me and said hey i got tickets to uh kill bill midnight uh and it's at the new beverly i was like yep i'm there man i'm gonna go i'm gonna hang out with you we're gonna do this um and so unfortunately this sort of rolled in right when we started putting these music videos together and so the prep was taking so much time and so much of gina's time and so we uh, got to that day uh of doing it and then it it just i forgot what it's like to do a midnight screening like it's a lot and like i had been going to bed early because of my covid schedule and so the night before i'm like i'm gonna stay up to like three and try to get myself on track and which fucked up my schedule the next day because then I woke up too early and I was super fucking tired. And I'm like, ah, I don't want to be an old man and not go to this fucking thing. And so then I came out and Gina was like, it was late. It was like nine o'clock or whatever it was. And, and she's still fucking pounding away on prep. And I'm like, fuck, we probably shouldn't go. Right. Cause you're going to fall asleep as soon as you stop doing this. And I might fall asleep. You know, we probably shouldn't go, but let's just tell them, let's go get drinks with Chris and his girl and hang out. So we did, and we met a bunch of really cool folks. We went and had a bunch of beers, which was nice. I forget the bar that we went to, but it was, uh, it was like a rare Irish pub out here, which you don't really see much of. And it was like a really down and dirty Irish pub. Um, was it over in West Hollywood? I don't remember, but it was this really great spot. And uh, met uh, some writers, met some other music video directors, and we all talked shop. It was a really fun hangout. And it turns out that we all decided not to go to the New Beverly, and we just hung out and had a bunch of beers. And it was just nice. It was just really nice. And this was on Friday, right? I think it was a Friday. Really nice. And then um, Chris, like, offhandedly was like, Hey, you uh are... you want to go see some rugby tomorrow? <laughs> and I didn't have anything to do. <laughs> and I was like, yeah, all right. Yeah, let's do it. And he's like, yeah, you know, I have no idea what to expect. I get these tickets. We'll go see rugby. I'm like, where the fuck is rugby? Is rugby a thing in the U S like, what the fuck? And I had never even watched rugby. It's like, this is like real man's football, right? It's like football without all the rules. Isn't that what rugby supposed to be? Isn't that uh, what uh, Bullet Tooth Tony, what the actor who played Bullet Tooth Tony, wasn't he a rugby player initially? Uh, and so I was like, yeah, all right, I'll go. Um, and so that Saturday, the next day, ended up hanging out again and uh, went and saw this fucking weird-ass rugby game. <laughs> and I was posting about it on Instagram. Weird rugby game where two teams... and What was the name of the team? They weren't the Martinis, but they were... I know if Chris is listening to it, he's like yelling the name. What the fuck was it? Something martinis. It's this weird team that's an LA pro team that's put together by this guy who owns a liquor store. <laughs> and so like he, I think it's like the martinis or a Christinis. I forget, but it's the dude's name, you know? And so the team's named after the guy's name. And then they're supposedly making a drink after the team. And it was just, Kind of, it kind of felt like, in a weird way, it felt like a sports event combined with like backyard wrestling. Right? They had like a halftime show with a, a whole other rugby team that came out and played in like fucking ba- banana hammock briefs, <laughs> and they were running around beating the shit out of each other in underpants. It was a lot of fucking fun, and I ended up going over to the Coliseum out here in Los Angeles, which I'd never been to before and That was cool. Um, it was just a great time. It really was. And I never like I usually I'm not a sports guy. I know I'm from Boston. I'm supposed to be a fucking sports socks dude. You know how the fucking Patriots doing? The fucking Bruins? The Celtics, bro? No, none of that. None of that. And the thing that I hated about sports because I was a bar guy. Whenever there was a fucking game on, every goddamn fucking bar had a TV that was so fucking loud. So moving out here to California has been kind of a relief as far as the bars are concerned, because yes, there are sports fans out here, but it doesn't run the fucking, the city doesn't take over everything. So anyway, I, I, I'm not normally a sports guy, not normally a dude that would go to a game. And, uh, uh, this was fucking great. The closest thing I could compare it to is like, (laughs) is like VFW hall wrestling, (laughs) And it was a lot of fucking fun. And then um, we ended up continuing to hang out. We went to, uh, uh, let's see if I could find this name because I keep talking about LA bars and everybody's like, but you don't remember what they are. (laughs) Yeah, I know, my bad. Uh, We ended up going to, as I scroll through my feed, and you guys have to listen to me scrolling through my feed. Oh, yeah, okay. We went to this um, uh, dive bar which I fucking love. You know, I grew up in dive bars, right? Those of you who are from Boston, those of you from the East Coast, the model was my spot, right? I would always be at the model, the Model as the assholes would call it. I'd be at the model all the time. And uh, I love places with walls that are painted black, right? Maybe there's a window in the front and that's it. Place smells like fucking piss and beer. That's always has been my go-to. Um, and I've been looking for my spot out here, you know, um, and I found this place or, or Chris and his girl took me to the spot called Tony's saloon. Those of you in Los Angeles are going, yes, Tony's Tony's saloon. Really cool spot, man. Uh, it reminds me of like a divy bar from like Atlanta, almost strangely, or like, a not Nashville, maybe like an Atlanta, Nashville-y kind of bar, all black walls, very long, goes all the way to the back, no fucking windows. Um, then you've got Buck Hunter in the corner. <laughs> and uh, we ended up talking to the bartender, and it turns out that this spot, these are the second owners, but this spot used to be owned by some of the, some of the wise guineas. You know what I'm saying? Some of the fucking Italian dudes with uh, extracurricular activities. And uh, this place was uh, uh, a place where they would gather the the gambling, uh, the bets. And they'd gather all that in the spot. So it's some pretty fucking cool history there. And uh, it was so much fun. It was so much fun hanging out with Chris, hanging out with his friends, and just being in that fucking scenario again, being in a dive bar, talking about life, hanging out with fucking people. And this was like a few days before they told us that we got to wear masks again. But I loved it. So big shout out to Chris. Um, Thanks for inviting me. And uh, that's it. Enough rambling. Enough ranting and raving. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Uh, Plenty more regular episodes on the way. I am in the process of scheduling out new guests, lining up new folks, um, and trying to squeeze them in while doing this uh, post-production on these videos. Um, and then as far as the movie front's going, things are moving. Things are moving along. Uh, I've got a meeting tomorrow. Um, and uh, we're, uh, we're getting there. So hopefully soon. But that's it, man. Thank you guys for listening. And uh, as always, I will see you next Tuesday.